Good evening to everyone. Trust your day was fruitful and productive. Jane and I would like to thank you for your kindnesses to us this week. It's certainly been, uh, uh, it's been a good week. It's been fun. It's been really good to spend uh, some extended time here. Uh, it's kind of hard to do um, without an assignment like this to just spend a whole week. But I think the, uh, the timing was right for us, and we, we certainly enjoyed it. And just um, connecting with some of you again has been a really big blessing. Okay, so last evening I uh, got a little long-winded about our worship services. So I'm going to try to uh, finish up last evening's um, talk and then um, go into what I had planned for this evening. The power of the ordinary. And so I had, I had two things that I wanted us to think about. And I mentioned that the first one was maybe geared a little more to the younger people. And th the reason for that is I think that as we... As we grow older, it's a little easier for us to appreciate and um, enjoy and understand, especially the real traditional things um, that we do as a people and culture. By the way, if you think that Mennonites or Anabaptists are the only people that are traditional, you've never been in a mainstream church like the churches in our area that are far more traditional and rigid and stiff than uh, anything service I've ever been in here. Um, but yeah, we, we tend to, to uh, be a little more at peace with um, the way we do things. So this evening, I want to talk maybe a little more to, to the, those of us who are a little on the older side of young, if that makes any sense. And I want to talk about hospitality. This is another stake, I think, that needs to be strengthened as I mentioned, as we lengthen the cords and strengthen the stakes. When Jane and I lived here in Burden Hand, just up the road, um, I, don't, I don't think that we particularly have the gift of hospitality. I just want to say that up front, um, lest you think that I'm just talking about the things that uh, I find particularly easy or whatever. That's not the case with the worship part. And that's not the case with this hospitality part. You have um, um, a designated host family for Sunday, uh, just as we do at Trogger, to invite the people um, that are visiting. And that was not particularly something that Jane and I looked forward to all that much. Um, Jane is more of a house cleaner. She's not so much of a, a person who loves to cook. Um, so the whole hospitality to strangers thing was, was certainly not our strong suit. But we, of course, cheerfully and willingly took our uh, turn once a year and then uh, sort of uh, breathed aside that that was done for a while type of thing. Well... We moved to Westmoreland County. <clears throat> we didn't have any neighbors that we knew. Now, neighbors being the people that lived close to us. And we do live at the edge of a small town. Those of you that have been there know what that looks like. And it was um, a burden of ours to get to know the people that we lived among. 
Now, we were not the first of the Mennonites that had moved into the area, but the people of western Pennsylvania are exceedingly nosy. Um, they are worse than the beaches when it comes to the grapevine. It works incredibly well and about as effectively as it does here, um, effectively as in the, the uh, transmission of things that are actually true is about as reliable there as it is here. So long before we purchased our property, it was well known in the community that Mennonites were moving in. <clears throat> before we moved, there was a sign at the end of our driveway. And those of us, those of you who have been to our place, you know what it looks like. We have a long, uh, kind of a fishhook-shaped driveway. You can't see our house or our barn from the road. And there was a sign at the end of our lane that said, no trespassing. And so it was not necessarily uh, a real, a place that was particularly welcoming. Of course, that sign disappeared um, when we bought the property. But we, we wanted to give a completely different vibe to the community uh, around us. We wanted people to feel free to stop in. Uh, I was sitting on our front porch <clears throat> one morning the summer that we moved, um, praying that the Lord would give me some way to connect with local people. And... You know, Mervs have their store and they have people in and out all the time and Chet has his garage and he has people in and out all the time. And we were sort of back on this little farm and couldn't even see the road from our house and nobody could see us from the road. We couldn't even wave to people as they went by. So I was praying about that. It was no more than an hour and a half or so later when a pickup truck pulled in the driveway and this young man got out. He was a farmer. And we stood and talked and talked and talked and talked. This was July. Every farmer should be busy as all get out. But he apparently wasn't, which is pretty typical of our neighborhood. And he talked and we talked and we talked. So he stops in occasionally. I often look at my watch when he comes just to see how long it's actually going to be. And it hasn't yet been less than an hour so that was a, a quick connection that we made. So, but we, we felt like it was necessary for us to um, invite people to our, to our house. But we found that um, it wasn't always, like, like we got rebuffed uh, more than, um, certainly more than we were comfortable with and more than we thought we would. It seemed that every time we invited neighbors to our house, a wave of sickness would hit the town. And at the last minute, people's children got sick, and they got sick, and their mother-in-laws got sick, and all kind of people got sick. But we also found that um, if we checked up on them the next week to see if they were still sick, and if they would like to come this week, um, that usually gets us over the hump and I, don't, I guess they just figure they may as well come and get it over with or we'll just keep pestering them. I'm not sure what the deal is. But um, we have made some interesting uh, connections and one of the real interesting things that happened in our kitchen, <coughs> one uh, time we invited two of our neighbors um, 
they discovered that they'd been uh, both living in the area for about 12 years and had never met. Uh, they met for the first time in our kitchen. So they were, um, they were exclaiming about how it took the Mennonites to come to uh, Kecksburg to uh, have people meet each other. So I have um, a neighbor, an older man in his 70s that I uh, work with a bit and uh, talk to quite a bit. And he, um, I mentioned to him one day that the people are so friendly here. And he said, yeah, he said, they're, people are really friendly. He said, but they don't have a lot to do with each other. And he's right. And he told me a lot of stories about uh, the people in the area there. And, and in our area, we've, we've been amazed at how many people have been there for a long time. They've lived there long. We're going to be the new people in that town for decades. Um, we will always be looked at kind of as the new people. Um, a lot of deep roots there. And, and he told me, he said, maybe, uh, maybe, you're, the, maybe you're the people that, ne- that we need to bring us together, he said. Maybe you're the people we need to bring us together. <clears throat> so I'd like to throw that challenge to you this evening. Who, uh, who is it that you need to bring together? We are all, we have all come to the kingdom for such a time as this. We have all come to the kingdom for such a time as this. God has planted us where we are for a reason. We are not here by happenstance. We are not where we are by happenstance. And the Spirit would like to use us right where we are. Young people, don't get squirrely about wanting to be somewhere else. The Holy Spirit can and will move you when the time is right. In the meantime, be busy where you are. The first evening I mentioned um, family idolatry. One of the things that goes along with family idolatry is um, the, uh, how should I say, the fortressing of our homes. One of the things that um, has uh, touched Jane and I and um, changed the way we thought about this is a book entitled The Simplest Way to Change the World by... Uh, Dustin Willis and Brandon Clements. Biblical Hospitality is a Way of Life. I would recommend this book. Uh, It's certainly not written from an Anabaptist perspective, and of course you have to wade around some of that stuff like you do in a lot of books. But just a tremendous, uh, a lot of good practical ideas and a real uh, biblical basis for using our homes as tools for ministry. In this book, They make the case, that's actually very easy to make, that in our culture, the culture of the United States today, now I'm talking about in the culture of of America, we've gotten this fortress or castle mentality about our homes. Our home is our castle, and nobody should invade or uh, come near it. It is ours for our use, and everybody else should stay in theirs. Willis and Clements in this book identify four currents in today's American culture that I want to talk about here a little bit 
and um, just look at whether these currents are affecting us. Are these currents, in fact, creeping in to our fellowships? The first one is isolation. Our homes as a place of isolation. Privacy is, is a major need when people uh, shop for homes. Now, in our area, there are developments everywhere. We, we kind of live in the country, but north of us and south of us, there are developments everywhere, and that's happening here too. And what do you see in the developments in the backyards everywhere? Swimming pools, but fences, fences. Fences, privacy fences. And you look at these, um, and you can, you can even see it on Google Maps and other places. You look at these uh, from the air, and everything is all fenced off. Now, some of that has to do with America's obsession with pets. But a lot of it also has to do with this, this desperate need for privacy everywhere. Fences, gates, bolts, locks, security systems cameras, the whole bit, to protect, to protect, to stave off, and to isolate. Now, we understand, of course, that appropriate isolation and privacy are necessary in a home and, of course, good. But taken to extremes, a desire for isolation is at odds with biblical teaching. It's at odds with biblical teaching of community, of hospitality, and, and neighborliness, just uh, being friendly. Now, maybe you're one of those people who, whenever you hear about hospitality, you kind of cringe because you're an introvert, and hospitality is for extroverts. And so on kind of a basic level, you can sort of divide us into introverts and extroverts. But this has nothing to do with introverts and extroverts. There's more than one right way to practice hospitality, just like there's more than one right way to do most anything. Those of you who are introverts do not have the right to be isolationists or hermits. You know that. I don't need to tell you that. Those of you that are introverts will very likely be hospitable in small groups. You'll probably more, be more comfortable with a couple or maybe two. Those of you that are extroverts would probably be more comfortable with a crowd. Jane and I are not as comfortable with a crowd. When we invite people over, we usually invite a couple or two. That's what we feel more comfortable with. We like to gather in kind of a small group and have a more uh, intimate setting where we can have a meaningful conversation rather than, you know, this kind of a congregation, uh, uh, conversations flying all over the place type of thing. So there's, just because you're an introvert doesn't mean you need to be isolated. The second current that they identify as relaxation or refuge. Our homes as a place of refuge and relaxation. So we get home from a busy day or the end of a busy week or whatever, and we go inside and we, of course, have the um, central air on and the windows are closed and all the noise is shut out and we can sit down and put our feet up and relax. Our homes is a place to unwind. Me time. Now, I'm all for me time. I, I need it too, just like everybody else does. And we all know that we need to relax and we need a place of refuge. And we need even me time. But you know as well as I 
that when we place personal relaxation at the forefront of the purpose of our homes, we miss a lot of God-given opportunities to impact and interact with people, impact people and interact with them. The, the third current is entertainment. The entertainment addiction, according to Willis and Clements, which I certainly can't argue with, is fueled by our desire for isolationism or isolation and relaxation. Our addiction to entertainment is fueled by our desire for isolation and relaxation. And we understand, too, that there's nothing inherently wrong with being entertained. But this trend, I think, is probably the most disturbing because of how easy and at our fingertips entertainment is, more so than ever before. And this has exploded even in the last 10 years. And how much time entertainment consumes. And see, so we're now taking our entertainment in two-hour and three-hour chunks. I won't bore you with statistics about how much screen time the average American has every day. It's alarming. But I, I wonder sometimes if, if it's really that much different for us. The fourth uh, current that they identify is busyness. And I've already talked at the beginning of these, this class about heightened expectations. And that, that's what this, these heightened expectations bring. A lot of, it, it, it makes us busy. You see, we have an enormous amount more resources than previous generations had. We have more money. We have more information. We have scads more technology. We have more stuff. We have more time-saving devices. But there is one resource that we do not have more of, and we never will, and that's time. We're going to have 24 hours a day. That's all they had hundreds of years ago, and that's all they're going to have hundreds of years from now if, we, if the Lord tarries and we live. And so with, with all this stuff, with all this stuff, there's still only so much time to put all the stuff in. And so when the stuff accumulates, we get busier and we get busier and we get busier. And we hurry more and we um, get more frustrated and our blood pressure rises, etc. Now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mention this. I wasn't sure if I should this happened a number of years ago, and maybe I should get over it. Maybe I should just forget it. This was when uh, our children were much younger, and this was, this was at a time when I, as a father, was probably the most frustrated, <laughs> and maybe it's the point where this burden for our young fathers and families started. But we had a 15-day stretch in our schedule where we had church and school obligations for, I think it was 11 out of those 15 evenings or 12. I kind of forget what it was, but it was ridiculous. And none of it was fire company. None of it was sports. None of it was vacation. None of it was... It was all church and school. 
it was kind of a combination of, I think there was, there was evening meetings here at Weavertown. There was Bible study stuff. I think it was two different PTFs because we had children in two different schools. And it was just like the perfect storm. And I said to my wife, I said, how are we supposed to raise a family? Now, maybe I shouldn't get so worked up about those kinds of things, but that's the kind of pressure that I'm talking about um, when I'm talking about heightened expectations. We, we, we need to be careful about those kinds of things. I know that some of our business is self-inflicted, but some of it's not. Some of it is kind of handed to us. Now, when we, when we look at these four currents, I don't particularly see in our culture now, our Anabaptist culture, I don't particularly see this current of isolation and even relaxation. I don't really see a problem. But I, I do see a problem coming with this entertainment current. And I know that this business current has already been a problem for decades. And any of these four will hinder our ability to be hospitable. Because hospitality, hospitality takes time. Just like any use of our spiritual gifts takes time. I don't know if any any of the spiritual gifts that doesn't take an investment of time. And I want to remind us too that um, as I talked about in the parable of the talents, the gifted busy, they don't have time for useless activity. And those are often the people that are first to throw out the entertainment kinds of things because we don't have time. When we are concentrating on what's important, these currents don't affect us. And I guess that's my plea to us. I'm not against technology. I'm not against social media. I'm not against entertainment. But we have to be honest about how these things are affecting us. And if you get tired of older people like myself harping about it and talking about it, you consider the fact that it's my age of people that has seen the change. Those of you that are 19 and 20, you don't, you don't have perspective on what's happened in the last 20 years. You haven't even been around that long hardly. It's older people that have the perspective. And... Most of us my age aren't as ignorant about what's happening out there in the technology world as sometimes you think we are. In our culture, another um, hindrance, big hindrance to hospitality, and maybe I should talk especially to the women here, to our sisters, a, a big hindrance to hospitality can be the desire to make an impression or to kind of show off what we have. Hospitality is not about making an impression on people. It's about making people feel comfortable. It's about making them um, or, or putting them in a situation where they feel cared for and, um, and paid attention to. All of us love care. All of us love to have our names mentioned. 
all of us love to be asked questions and to have us engaged in conversation because it makes us feel valuable, makes us feel um, necessary and valued. So sometimes people don't want to be hospitable or entertained because their house is a mess. Well, the point of hospitality is not to show off your house. The point of hospitality is not to show off your skills as a housekeeper. The point of hospitality is to care for people. And there are seasons of your life where your house is seldom in tip-top shape. And if you think three and four-year-olds four are bad, wait till you have teenagers. So if you have little children, and especially if you have big children, your house probably isn't going to be in tip-top tip shape very often. And if that's your excuse for not entertaining or being hospitable, then, <laughs> then um, it shouldn't take days of planning and preparation to be hospitable. There's a new term uh, floating around in social media. It's called scruffy hospitality. Scruffy hospitality. Well, scruffy hospitality is when you, um, when you allow your home to be well used and lived in when you invite guests. Scruffy hospitality is about sitting down across a table from some, with someone uh, with a couple of cups of coffee with the house back there just being what it is because the attention is here. And I find it a fascinating, um, a fascinating concept. So when you invite guests to your house, what, what are you trying to provide them? What are you trying to give them? A good impression? or a good conversation with a good cup of coffee? What are you trying to show? Your culinary skills or a caring, attentive spirit? You can have just as good a conversation over a glass of milk and a chocolate chip cookie as you can with all kind of fancy whatevers that took hours and hours and hours to prepare. It is far better to be hospitable than it is to have everything perfect for your company once a year. Now, I'd like to challenge some of you older uh, parents and couples as well. Um, it seems to me that as our mothers uh, get older, they should get a little more time. Now, I'm not sure that that's necessarily the case, but it seems to me that that's the way it should be. As children start to leave the house, there should be more time. I'd like to challenge you uh, older couples, and well, I don't know what older means, but especially those of you that aren't um, uh, busy caring for children on a day-to-day -day basis, to be the initiators in hospitality, especially here in your congregation. You have the money, you have the time, I, I guess. You certainly have the, the houses, um, and they're probably paid for, and, and you, you probably have a little more wiggle room in terms of your resources and so on. 
And you're the ones, I think, that should be initiating um, those kinds of interactions with younger families. I'd like to suggest that there are three levels of hospitality. The first one is being hospitable to those in church right here, in your church family. We don't visit each other as often as we used to. Do you know that? Now, I remember the days when mom and dad would load us up in the car and we'd go visiting on a Sunday afternoon. And we'd just drop in on people and visit. I'm not necessarily suggesting we bring that back. But maybe what we should bring back is a desire for connection, increased connection with our church family. But see, what's happening is that this busyness thing really sometimes gets in the way. I know sometimes people, when we get to a Sunday evening, I'm just glad to sit, right? Free Sunday evenings are pretty nice. Well, if we're gonna if we're gonna run our schedules at breakneck pace, then we're not going to be visiting each other like we used to. And if we're not going to be visiting each other like we used to, then we're we're not going to have the connections that we wish we had. Uh, more hospitality uh, in our church family would give us increased connection. It would give us a stronger community bond. We would learn to know and understand each other better. Now, this is easier for us at Trogger. We're not as many. Yes, Aaron. When we start young people's meetings, our pastors at that time, I was not ordained, our pastors at that time uh, had the wisdom to say, let's just have young people's meetings once a month so we don't lose the time of visiting in our, each other's homes. And so we didn't do like many churches did, and they got the fire of revival, have church every Sunday night. And the others were supposed to be for visitation. That's interesting. <clears throat> now, I understand the fun of hospitality tonight because you invite people over and you don't know who's coming. I, I get all that. But should we really need that? Should we really need a hospitality tonight to, to get us to invite each other to our houses for meals? In Acts, they broke bread from house to house. They ate their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, having favor with all the people. I think that's a worthy, a worthy thing to aspire to. And this eating, uh, this breaking bread from house to house, that's not talking about communion. They were eating meals together. And by the way, hospitality is about food. Uh, there is something about eating together that makes um, visitation rich. The second um, level of hospitality, if, if you will, is being hospitable to strangers. And um, Brandon, or Dustin Willis and Brandon Clements in this book, they, they don't even talk about inviting their church people. To, to them, hospitality is inviting people they don't know or people that aren't Christians. We feel good about ourselves if we just have a family from church over every once in a while. But what about our neighbors? Now, I, I know that some of you just have Amish neighbors, and that's, that was our case here in, in Burdenhan. But I also know that more and more of you are living in um, 
developments and places where you're surrounded by neighbors who aren't Christians or, or maybe are Christians and just not uh, part of our fellowship. So being hospitable to strangers or people you don't know very well is another level of hospitality. And that's a means of establishing relationships that allow us to answer questions if they ask them. But let's not bait and switch our neighbors and invite them to our homes and then preach to them. That's not the point of hospitality. The point of hospitality is to form relationships. And as we heard this week, that takes time. That takes time. <clears throat> I have more stories I could tell about that, but I don't have time. So one of the things I want us to guard against is is feeling good about ourselves, this self-righteousness thing, thinking that we really have it together. So I know that we have host families. We do this at Trauger as well. And so every Sunday, there's somebody designated, uh, prepared to uh, invite the visitors for a meal. And I get that that's an organized and efficient way of making sure that everybody's taken care of. But should we need designated host families? Wouldn't it be better if there would be a line of three people waiting to invite the visitors to their house? Because that's just what we're called to do. When the Bible talks about hospitality, it talks about entertaining strangers, not your church brothers. Now, obviously, in Acts, they were practicing hospitality with their church brothers, but the Bible also talks about entertaining strangers. So I want, I want you to keep up your host family thing at least until there are enough of you that are jumping um, when there's visitors uh, and when you see that line forming uh, by the visitors to invite them for uh, lunch, maybe you could dispense with the uh, appointed host family. The third level of hospitality is being hospitable to our enemies. And I don't know much about this. I don't, I don't, I don't know of anyone uh, in our area who is our enemy. But I want to I read um, an account in this book that touched me, that blessed me. And when I thought of the power of the ordinary, I thought of, of this story. This is not one of the authors. It's just an account that they read. It's in a section called Talk Less, Eat More. Rosaria Butterfield, some of you may know that name. Rosaria Butterfield, former professor and author of The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, described her impression of Christianity before she became one. This is a quote from her book. She says, the word Jesus stuck in my throat like an elephant tusk. No matter how hard I choked, I couldn't hack it out. Those who professed the name commanded my pity and wrath. As a university professor, I tired of students who seemed to believe that knowing Jesus meant knowing little else. Christians in particular were bad readers, always seizing opportunities to insert a Bible verse into a conversation with the same point as a punctuation mark to end it rather than deepen it. Stupid, Pointless, menacing. That's what I thought of Christians and their God, Jesus, who in paintings looked as powerful as a Breck shampoo commercial model. 
That's the end of that particular quote. This woman continued, or she began researching the religious right and their treatment of the homosexual community and realized she'd have to read the Bible to see where they got their ideas. As part of this process in 1997, that's back 23 years, she wrote a scathing article in her local New York newspaper about the Promise Keepers movement. To her surprise, she received back a kind and inquiring letter from a local pastor named Ken. <clears throat> Here is the eventual result of that letter. <clears throat> and this is again a quote from a book of hers. With the letter, Ken initiated two years of bringing the church to me, a heathen. Oh, I had seen my share of Bible verses on placards at gay pride marches that Christians who mocked me on gay pride day were happy that I and everyone I loved were going to hell was clear as blue sky. But this is not what Ken did. He did not mock. He engaged. So when his letter invited me to get together for dinner, I accepted. My motives at the time were straightforward. Surely this would be good for my research. But something else happened. Ken and his wife, Floyd, and I became friends. They entered my world. They met my friends. We did book exchanges. We talked openly about sexuality and politics. They did not act as if such conversations were polluting them. They did not treat me like a blank slate. When we ate together, Ken prayed in a way I had never heard before. His prayers were intimate, vulnerable. He repented of his sin in front of me. He thanked God for all things. Ken's God was holy and firm, yet full of mercy. And because Ken and Floyd did not invite me to church, I knew it was safe to be friends. I continued reading the Bible, all the while fighting the idea that it was inspired. But the Bible got to be bigger inside me than I. It overflowed into my world. I fought against it with all my might. And then one Sunday morning, I rose from the bed of my lesbian lover and an hour later sat in a pew at the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. And then... One ordinary day I came to Jesus, open-handed and naked. In this war of worldviews, Ken was there, Floyd was there, that the church that had prayed for me for years was there. Jesus triumphed, and I was a broken mess. Conversion was a train wreck. I did not want to lose everything that I loved, but the voice of God sang a sanguine love song in the rubble of my world. I weakly believed that if Jesus could conquer death, he could make right my world. And Rosario's story uh, has been written about, and it all started with a kind and inquiring spirit and a simple dinner invitation. All the while, this pastor invited a person to his home that was wanting to wreck the very thing that he believes that's being hospitable to your enemies. Now, I don't know that I've ever had that opportunity, but if any of us ever does, let's take it. Now, I know that some of you entertain and host uh, Muslim people here at church, and that's probably as, as, as close as, as, as anything that I know about. And I'd like to encourage you and, and bless you and commend you. Because when a person such is converted and becomes a Christian, uh, even if they don't necessarily join an Anabaptist church, when they come to faith and overcome that, that kind of, of, um, of um, sin, that is incredibly significant. And if it can start 
with being hospitable, then may we all be hospitable. So my challenge to the Weavertown Church is to just to continue to increase the time you spend with each other. With one accord, according to Acts 2, 46 and 47, with one mind, breaking bread from house to house, eat your meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people, and may the Lord add to the church daily those that will be saved. <clears throat> those of you who are into more contemporary music, um, if you don't already know it, look up the song Dream Small by Josh Wilson and download it onto your playlist. <clears throat> I want to take a little more time this evening to talk about um, some of the, the bumps in the road for the early church, and I'm going to try to do this real quick here in the last about five minutes. Now, Weavertown Church has reached in the last 20-some years a lot of places and people. Cornerstone is one of your offsprings. Trauger is one of your offspring. Believers Mennonite in Hampton, Connecticut is one of your offspring. And now Living Hope in Perry County as well. You have a family And adding to the family always brings great joy, but I also understand that it's a tremendous drain on resources. I remember what it was like to have children. And it's as exciting as all get out to have a new baby, but they are a drain on resources. And there are some uh, interesting comparisons there uh, with churches as well. I know that you have sent some very gifted people to these places. People that would still be useful here. People that you could still use and draw from. I, I get that. Um, but if there's anything that you can see here in the book of Acts, it's that whenever there is growth, there is also loss. Did you think about when you studied the death of Stephen? how that must have, must have rocked that young church. And did you wonder and did you discuss why this man's ministry was so short? I think Stephen was probably one of the most charismatic and gifted young men that the early church had produced. And how long of ministry did he have? Did you talk about that? If, if his ministry started at Pentecost, he must have died very soon after we don't exactly know the chronology, but I think Stephen was probably only ministering for weeks, possibly months. What does it say about the men who buried Stephen? They made great lamentation over him. This was a big deal. They had lost one of their best. And after his death, the persecution began and they spread, and they scattered because of the persecution. We have never had to do that. We don't know how that feels. But do you know what they did as they went? You know what they did as they went, don't you? What did they do? They went everywhere preaching the word. 
This was not the apostles. The apostles apparently stayed in Jerusalem, according to Acts chapter, what is it, 8, 7, there somewhere. And the others were the ones being hassled uh, by the Jews, and so they scattered. And they went everywhere preaching the word. In Acts chapter 5, the apostles were beaten. And they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. I didn't even know how to, what to say about that verse in Sunday school. How do, you, how do you get there? I don't know. Public disgrace, flogging. And they rejoiced. Maybe that's easier when you're being persecuted in this kind of a way. I believe our persecutions in 2020 come in a far different way. I know that we are persecuted. I'm not one of those that makes the case that we're not being persecuted, therefore we're not living godly. That's, we are being persecuted. Satan is against us. He is opposing us, and that's persecution. But maybe that kind of attitude is easier with that classic persecution. I don't know. But I wish that I could personally get to that place. But we need to understand that as we grow, as our tent gets bigger and the cords get longer, there's going to be pressure. And I think a lot of our pressure comes in relationships. But it came in relationships and acts too. Read your Bible. It's there. So in chapter 4, they were, um, they were sharing with everybody and everybody's needs were met. And then all of a sudden you get to the beginning of chapter 6 and the Grecians are murmuring against the Hebrews because their widows are ne- ne- being neglected. Well, you know who the Grecians were? They were the liberals. They were the Hellenists. You don't think there was relationship struggle there? You know, we read over those verses and we don't always think about what's actually going on. And so they appointed deacons to take care of that problem. The early church in Acts was not a utopia by any means. And we, I didn't even mention Ananias and Sapphira yet, that whole business. It talks about them being bold, which means, or them praying for boldness, which means not having fear. But it talks about fear coming upon every soul. And here's one last thing I'll leave you with. Most of the opposition to the early church came from the Jews. The Romans were doing who knows what at this time. That's kind of another story. And I'm not exactly sure how the Jews were getting away with killing Stephen and so on. But the Romans are AWOL. They're not paying attention. This is Jew on Jew crime. And you read in the book of Acts how many times the Jews stirred up the people. It's the same thing they did at Jesus' trial. And then the King James Version there says they moved the people. I know, I'm going to take another minute here. Ken, may I have another minute? I have five. Okay. They stirred up the people. It also says they persuaded the people. 
And let me ask you, why are the people so easily stirred up? When there is trouble, why are the people so easily stirred up? Why does so much of our opposition come from within? Our government is not molesting us. A lot of our hassles come from within. And the only way the Jews could stir up people was to talk and persuade and talk and persuade and talk and persuade. And the people got stirred up. And that's still happening, friends. And to the extent that it's happening in our congregations, we have to get a lid on this. The tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. Edify, build up, build up. We are called to edify the church. <clears throat> and my prayer is that this church would continue to expand its reach. And the habitation here has gotten bigger. It has. The habitation reaches to other parts of the state and other parts of the northeast. The cords have been lengthened. The stakes need strengthened. The spirit is at work. Let's get behind that. And in ordinary ways, in small ways, in little ways, be faithful. Be faithful. And when we're faithful in that which is least, he will make us faithful in much. Thank you for your attention and your attendance this week. I appreciate it.